Good morning. <laughs> Welcome to yet another week of being scattered together. We are hopeful that uh, this will not be for much longer, but just praying this will be a blessing to you this morning. Wherever you're gathering, the Spirit will meet you powerfully. We're going to come to a time in our service as we do each week. We'll look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible, Bible app, whatever it is, would you open it now to Matthew 4, first book in the New Testament, Matthew 4, beginning now, verse 12, and we'll read through to the end of the chapter. Matthew writes this, now when he heard that John had been arrested, this is Jesus, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Here we go again. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. That's God's word. Let me pray for us quickly and then we'll dive right into this great passage today. Spirit of God, would you illumine the preaching of your word now today? Uh, shine your light into our darkness, God. Uh, show us what you want us to see, reveal what it is, and then give us hearts to not just hear and see it, but be obedient to what you call us to. And as I always ask now, eternal God, move and govern my tongue to speak your truth. Amen. Amen. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bares his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. Those of you familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, written by C.S. Lewis, might be familiar with those words of longing prophecy spoken by Mr. Beaver to the sons of Adam and daughters of Eve gathered around his humble table. I say longing prophecy because as he recounts these words to the children, the land of Narnia presently, anyway, remains under the curse of Jadis, the white witch, where, according to Lewis, in the whole land it remains always winter, but never Christmas. And yet, 
the, the message of hope now in the hearts and minds of all Narnians who are not loyal to the wicked queen, including Mr. Beaver, is this. Aslan is on the move. Good news. The, the best news, really, that is evidenced by the, the warmth, the, the color and lights and new life of spring now steadily returning to the land of Narnia at the return of its true king. Or to say it another way, the reality of the king's return is seen in the kingdom, this old kingdom passing away and the signs of his kingdom breaking in. Which I think is just the perfect illustration of, of what we see going on in our passage here today as Matthew, having already described Jesus' incarnation, his coronation, then last week his temptation in the wilderness, or we might call his representation, now describes the inauguration of Jesus' kingdom, along with the spring-like signs of his inbreaking kingdom. Three of which, three, three signs in particular, we see Matthew showing us here of Jesus bringing light into darkness, Jesus bringing about new beginnings, fresh starts in the lives of men and women, and freedom for the sick and the afflicted. Just, just these beautiful as well as powerful signs of the kind of rule and reign that Jesus' kingdom was bringing. But the reason I think it's so important that we spend some time focusing here on the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, as well as those signs of Jesus' inbreaking kingdom this morning, is, is not just for interest's sake, um, and, and not even because I believe we continue to see those signs still to this day, and actually in increasing measure globally, but because of this reason, because the good news of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom that Matthew speaks of Jesus proclaiming by word and deed there in verse 23 at the beginning of his earthly ministry is the very same gospel message that Jesus will command all of his followers, including you and me today, to go out and proclaim ourselves now at the end of his earthly ministry. And so in the same way that last week we looked at uh, the meaning of sonship for Jesus and the meaning of sonship for us, now this week, what I want us to look at together is the gospel of the kingdom for Jesus and then the gospel of the kingdom for us. The gospel of the kingdom for Jesus as, as he, Jesus proclaims the kingdom that he was bringing and the gospel of the kingdom for us as we now proclaim the kingdom that Jesus brought. So, Close your Bibles, your Bible app, whatever it is, would you open them again with me to our passage here, Matthew 4, beginning at verse 12. Follow along with me as we look at both the content as well as the confirmation of the gospel of the kingdom. Okay, so let's look first of all at the gospel of the kingdom for Jesus. The gospel of the kingdom for Jesus. So as we transition now from Jesus out in the wilderness to now the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, you can see, if you look at verse 12 there, there's almost something like a handoff, like a, a baton passing, if you will, from John the Baptist, who was the forerunner, to Jesus, who was, John had called the Lamb of God that he was preparing the way for. We know that both because Matthew tells us here, Jesus' public ministry in Galilee is commencing as John's concludes upon his imprisonment. But also, we know that because of what we see in verse 17. You see there that Jesus picks up the exact same message that John had been preaching back in chapter 3 and verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They're both saying the exact same message. 
But something I think it's really important for us to know and understand that while there is, yes, absolutely continuity between John's ministry and, and Jesus' ministry, Jesus' role and, and ministry, they're, they're still unique from John's. From, from John's say, role, from John's ministry, those are unique and, and different things still. In the same way that Aslan's role and work in Lewis's stories is still different than Mr. Beaver's. It's unique from Mr. Beaver's, even though they're both talking about this coming kingdom. Remember, who's John the Baptist? He's, he's the forerunner, right? He's the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. He's preparing the way for the coming king. Jesus is the king, come to bring God's kingdom to earth. And so, although their message is the same, when, when John is preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the, the kingdom of heaven has come near, it, it still had a different sense than when Jesus began to preach the exact same message. And so then what is it? Well, when, when, when Jesus goes throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, as we read there in verse 23, well, what did he mean? What did he mean when he was preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near? What did that mean for Jesus? What, what is the gospel of the kingdom for Jesus? I think, first of all, just to understand, I think we should clarify those two terms, gospel and kingdom. Just get us on the same page there, if you didn't know. Gospel, that word just means good news. Um, and, and as you've likely heard me or other preachers say before, news is different than advice. Because advice, which only tells us about what you should do, news tells us about something that's already happened. Right? And so the, the news here of what God has done is to keep his promise. That's the good news. God has kept his promise that he made all the way back at the beginning in Genesis 3.15 to send a rescuer, to send a, a, a ruler, a king, who would, this, this seed of the woman who would come do battle with the serpent and set, reset everything, restore all things in heaven and on earth back to God. So, so that's a big part of Jesus' message of the kingdom that he's proclaiming here. He's saying that promised king is now here. That, that's part of what it means. And then the word kingdom. Kingdom, generally speaking, all, uh, anyways, it has to do with a geographical area over which uh, a king uh, has rule. Uh, he rules, he has dominion, including all the people and the stuff inside that geographical area. So we'll say the kingdom is the boundaries as well as everything inside those boundaries. And so, same thing, the gospel of the kingdom for Jesus here is also about announcing and establishing his rule and reign on the earth, setting up his kingdom, which, which all sounds pretty good. Sounds pretty straightforward, really. And yet, the problem, if, if you haven't sensed it already, is this. If, if I were to take out a map and put it on a table in front of you, just roll out a map either of the world uh, in the first century or any century following, and I said to you, hey, point to me on the map. Where is Jesus' kingdom located? Could you just point to it for me? Where, where would you point? there's nowhere, right? Like you, you can't look on the map and, 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 and point somewhere. And so how does this work? And, and if you need confirmation of that, maybe you're still a little bit not convinced, if you read about Jesus' interaction with Pontius Pilate just before he's about to be crucified, 
Jesus literally says himself, yes, I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. So you're not going to look on a map and see it. But that then begs the question, okay, so how does this work? Because how can Jesus' proclamation truly be good news? How can it truly be gospel if he's the king bringing God's kingdom to earth and yet his kingdom is nowhere to be found? Type in kingdom of God into your Google Maps. What's it going to say? Like, how is it good news? Well, great question. And I believe the answer is found in this way. In the same way that Mr. Beaver knew Aslan was on the move, not because the map of Narnia had changed in some way, but because he began to see green grass and purple crocuses pushing up through the ground where there used to be snowbanks. So the world knew its king had returned when they began to see the signs of God's inbreaking kingdom. And again, those, those signs... Matthew lists at least three of them for us here in our passage today. Light shining into darkness. Lives radically changed and transformed. People healed of their sicknesses and afflictions. We're seeing these signs of the kingdom breaking into the winter. I want to just look at each of those signs individually, just very briefly for a moment. Uh, The first sign, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. As Matthew reveals, first of all, that's, that's yet another fulfillment of prophecy. As Jesus settles in the land of Galilee, in this town of Capernaum in particular, uh, again, the, Matthew's gospel, we keep saying, is a gospel of fulfillment, which was really important, particularly to his primarily Jewish audience, because he's trying to show them again and again, hey, all that stuff we've seen in the Old Testament scriptures, that's pointing to Jesus. He's the fulfillment of those things. And yet... Where Jesus settles, as he brings this light into the land of darkness, I think that also reveals something really cool about the the kind of kingdom Jesus came to bring as he sets up his home and ministry base, not in the big city capital of, of Jerusalem, there in the land of Judea, but up in the northmost backwoods region of Israel's borders in this little town on the sea called Capernaum. Because I don't know about you, like, I don't know a lot about Middle Eastern geography. And so when I read Jesus settled in Galilee, from my perspective, I kind of feel like that's like Jesus going to settle in Richmond. Like he's not in the main city center, but he's pretty close. But actually, when, when you read about it, Capernaum is actually 80 miles away from Jerusalem. Really far. And of course, traveling on foot or, or, or by camel, they're, they're not quick distances to travel. And as F.D. Bruner notes, Galilee was not just geographically far from Jerusalem. Again, it was 80 miles away. He says it was considered spiritually and politically far as well. With uh, R.T. France adding, Galilee has a predominantly less Jewish population. So it's quite a mix of hybrid, all kinds of different nations. And its people uh, uh, were regarded by Judeans as uncultured and irreligious. Jesus would have been considered like a foreigner in many senses in Jerusalem, having come from Galilee. My point is this. I think the place as well as the people that this king sets up his home base in and around actually tells us a lot about him, as well as the kind of kingdom, like what his kingdom will look like. So that's the first sign. The second sign, we see this radical life change, these new beginnings. As Jesus calls his first disciples, we see they're just 
complete shift of life and change uh, in their lives as long with the billions of fellow kingdom citizens that follow them. They show us almost like a thawing of icy hearts and minds as people break free from safe traditions and and allegiances and ways of being. They they shed their former ways of of thinking and seeing the world and are compelled towards a cause and and a vision that that just is so compelling that they see as worthy of this sacrifice. They see as as worthy of this heart and, and life immigration, if you will. They abandon everything to follow this Compelling, beautiful spring-like vision. Finally, the third sign where you see men, women, and children all being freed, being, being, experiencing freedom, experiencing healing from pain and affliction as well as spiritual bondage. They show us what I think is like the, the spring-like flowers of God's kingdom pushing through the hard, the frozen ground. We see spring breaking through in all these incredible ways as Jesus comes and proclaims his kingdom. Are you beginning to see it? Do you, do you see how there's these parallels now? In, in, in the same way that the melting snow and ice revealed the inbreaking of Aslan's kingdom rule over Narnia, so too do these reversals of the power and patterns of sin's curse reveal the inbreaking of Jesus' kingdom on the earth. It's just as we sing each Christmas in that famous uh, carol, no more let sins and sorrows grow nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. He's, he's shifting and turning every place where the curse is and bringing the signs of spring, revealing that his kingdom is breaking in. Yes, yes, that the day is coming one day when Jesus will return, as we read about in Revelation 21, and heaven and earth will become one as God's geographic kingdom is set up on the earth for all eternity to the degree that at that point in time, if I were to put out a map and say, hey, point at God's kingdom now, you could literally wave your hand across the whole thing and just say, there. That's going to be God's kingdom one day, and yet what what, what proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom meant for Jesus the first time he came was that although his kingdom had no geographical location, no landmarks, no capital yet, nothing, if you looked instead for the signs of his inbreaking kingdom, then or today, well, suddenly you'll see his kingdom everywhere. It's everywhere. Okay, so that's the gospel of the kingdom for Jesus. That's, that's what he meant as he came to proclaim this message. Repent, the kingdom of the heaven, the kingdom of heaven has come near. The last thing I want to look at together with you this morning is the gospel of the kingdom for us. The gospel of the kingdom for us. And we need to look at this as well because as I said earlier, the gospel of the kingdom that we see Jesus beginning to proclaim and then uh, here and then throughout his earthly ministry is the very same gospel, the very same good news that he will command all those who claim to be followers of his to go out and proclaim themselves. And if you're not familiar with where Jesus gives us that call as disciples of his, uh, which we see at the end of this story, let me just quickly give you the context if you're unfamiliar. We see that both in Matthew 28 as well as in Acts chapter 1, here the resurrected Jesus appears to his disciples one last time before ascending to his Father in heaven. First of all, Matthew 28, 19, he says, or 18 through 20, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And Acts chapter 1, Acts 1, 8. Jesus tells his disciples, but you will receive power when the Spirit comes, has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So, so it was a commission and a calling in, in light of our passage today that we actually see Jesus living out first himself. Jesus is doing this. As he goes around bringing light into darkness, he's, he's making disciples of all, uh, of all these different people, teaching them to obey all that he's commanded them. So that's, that, that's, that's what it's supposed to look like for us. That, that's what the gospel of the kingdom is supposed to mean for us as well. As we follow Jesus' pattern in the power of the Spirit to go announce the good news of, of what he's done, announce the arrival of his kingdom, and, and to try to seek by his power to, to make disciples of all nations. That's, that's what he's called us to do, to be those who proclaim that gospel of the kingdom. And yet one of the reasons I think many of us many times still fail to carry out this commission or still fail to see the necessity for any of us to be even involved in it is actually because of what I believe is a fundamental misunderstanding of what it means to be a disciple to begin with. I think we misunderstand that, and so that's why we don't often carry out the commission that Jesus has given us. And I think by looking at Jesus' calling of his first disciples that we have in that middle section of our passage here, my hope is that we'll all be encouraged today to remember something that you've likely heard me say many times if you've been here for any length of time, namely that Jesus, when he calls us, doesn't just save us from something, he also saves us to something. So look with me again here at that middle section, starting at verse 18. Let's just read about Jesus' call, what a call from Jesus looks like. Listen. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Try to hear that if you grew up in church and not hear the little song. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him, and going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in a boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. So here's Jesus calling these first disciples. Can we just acknowledge first before we say anything about this passage? This seems weird, right? <laughs> Doesn't that seem... I don't understand fully how this works. It seems to me as I read that, maybe there's something wrong with me, but I read this as one of the most random interactions between people ever. It just seems odd that someone's just walking along the beach, calls to someone in the middle of their job, like, follow me, and they're like, yeah, sure. That seems weird. That doesn't seem normal or natural to me. Like, I, I can't see myself doing that. I mean, I've been married to my wife over 15 years now. We, we know each other, love each other. We've got, walked through incredible joys and deep sorrows together. We're raising two incredible daughters. We, we, we know each other. We know so much about each other. And yet, if I was to walk into my wife's work one day, she's there at the pharmacy and be like, hey, babe, come follow me. I guarantee you she's not going to just put down her pills and pill bottles and follow me. She's going to say, no. What? what? Why? What, what are you doing here? She's not following me. And so, I mean, I get it. It's, it's Jesus, not me. So, I don't know, has he put in some kind of magic spell on them and they're just like, yes, we'll follow you. Like, it seems random that this would happen. 
that they would just, Jesus would just walk up to these blue-collar tradesmen in the middle of their work, say, follow me, and they just drop their nets and drop, leave their families, their livelihood, and just follow him. Well, fortunately for all of us, we have four gospel accounts and not just one, which helps us flesh out the story a little bit because each gospel writer kind of has a little bit of different focus. Um, so this is helpful to us. First of all, John's gospel. Uh, John tells us, first of all, Andrew and John, those two guys, they apparently were, they used to be disciples of John the Baptist. And then they hear about Jesus when John calls him the Lamb of God and they begin going after him to kind of just see what he's about. They start investigating Jesus. Uh, John's gospel also tells us that that's where Simon, Jesus calls Simon Peter. Uh, so that gives us a little bit more information. It fleshes out the story a bit, takes away a bit of the randomness of what's going on here. But when we read the account in Luke's gospel that, that Luke gives us, we get even more information that's really helpful to us, actually, that helps us kind of see like what's going on in the in-between time between uh, Andrew and John hearing about Jesus and kind of checking him out and this call that Jesus says to come follow me. We're given a bit more information. Uh, so, so look at what Luke's gospel tells us here in Luke chapter 5. Listen. On one occasion... While the crowd was pressing in on him, this is Jesus, to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. This is still Lake of Galilee, just a different section. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets, getting into the one of the boats, which was Simon's. Okay. He asked him to put out a little bit from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let your, down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled the boats, both boats, so they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of the fish that they had taken, and also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Okay, here we go. We're starting to see all the connections here. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Okay. So, this, this, these pieces here help this all make way more sense now, right? Okay, we see that, that Jesus is not just some random guy calling out crazy stuff from the shore. Uh, Andrew, Peter, James, and John, they actually have this pre-existing relationship with Jesus. They, they've heard about him. They, they've heard some of his teaching. Now, they, they, they get to hear his teaching firsthand. They see his miraculous power at work. And then... It's only then that then they begin to become so captivated, so intrigued, transformed really by this rabbi as, as Beethoven so famously penned in the Ode to Joy. Their, their hearts begin to unfold like flowers before opening to the Son of Love. Uh, they, 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 they become so captivated that then when they see Jesus on the shore telling him to come follow him, now, yes, there's not even a question. They drop everything and follow him. Leap at the opportunity now. But here's the thing. Come back now to our passage in Matthew 4. Look carefully at Jesus' call to these four men as he makes them disciples, as he makes them kingdom citizens. This is where I think 
Maybe we're just reading too quickly and we just skim. I don't know, but we think we misread, or at least we mishear Jesus and subsequently get our definition of what it means to be a disciple wrong. Look again there. Because if you ask the average person today who would say they're a Christian, they would say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm a disciple of Jesus, and you were to ask them to tell you, what does that mean? What does that mean that you're a disciple of Jesus, a follower of his? What, what many, not all, but what many would tell you is something like this. Well, what that means is, I, I heard Jesus call in my life to turn from my sin and, and trust him for forgiveness, and I did that, and now I, I seek to follow Jesus with my life, I seek to obey him, and, and I believe that because he's forgiven my sin one day when he returns, he's going to take me to be with him in heaven, and, and all the other followers of Jesus, we're all going to be together. That's what it means, and, and, and that's what many people would tell you, and, and hear me, that, that's right, yeah, that, that there's not a single thing wrong with anything that person just said, and yet, look at verse 19 of our passage, look, look at Jesus' calling of his first disciples, and you notice what that person just described to you about what it means to be a follower of Jesus actually only deals with the follow me, but says nothing about the and I will make you. You see that? What they described was the follow me part, but not the what I, what I will make you as you follow me part. Which, listen, that doesn't mean for a second they're not saved, those people are not forgiven of their sins or, or, or anything like that. What it means is that their understanding of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus is still not yet fully formed. They've understood the gospel of the kingdom as something, or really more importantly, someone that, that's, that saved them from their sins and brought them into a relationship, and, and he has, that is what he's done, but what they, and maybe you, have yet to understand about the gospel of the kingdom is that it also saves us to something, saves us from our sins, but saves us to becoming fishermen, uh, uh, becoming Fisher people, we make it gender inclusive. <laughs> becoming witnesses, becoming disciple makers who now make disciples of the kingdom. That's the fullness of what it means. It's such a simple detail, it's so small, and I think that's why we so easily miss it, or maybe just forget it. But the reality is, listen, you can't understand Matthew 28, 19, go make disciples of all nations. You can't understand Acts 1, 8, you will be my witnesses if you don't understand the fullness of Jesus' call to be his disciple in Matthew 4, 19. You need to see this is the fullness of what it means to be a disciple because the call to become a follower of Jesus, the call to become a citizen in his kingdom, it's free, it's by grace. There's nothing we do to earn citizenship in his kingdom, nor is there anything that we can do to become more a citizen or, or become in danger of losing our citizenship. Yes, and yet, the call to follow Jesus never ends with you, never just ends with your salvation. It doesn't stop there. Jesus says the natural consequence, really the supernatural consequence of heeding his call to follow me is always and ever what he will make you as a result of following him. Freely you have received, Jesus told his first disciples as they were about to head out on their first missionary fishing trip, freely give. Or as the Apostle Paul would later say, 2 Corinthians 5, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors. We are 
fishermen for Christ. God making his appeal through us. That's what the gospel of the kingdom means for us. And when you think about all that now, in light of the opening lines of Jesus' prayer that he taught all of his followers to pray there in Matthew 6, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth like it is in heaven. It suddenly takes on a whole new life and meaning now, doesn't it? When we understand what the gospel of the kingdom truly means. For when we consider both the present as well as the future realities of the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus proclaimed and that we are to now proclaim as citizens of of his kingdom, it allows us, it means when we're praying that, your kingdom come, we're praying both that we might see more of his kingdom rule and reign now presently on the earth, And also longing for that future day. We're praying, bring that day when you'll set up your future geographic kingdom on the earth, where where spring will truly come at last as well. We're we're praying for both those things. Are, are, Are you longing to see that? Do you long to see Jesus rule and reign break into this earth more and more? Do you long for that future day when his kingdom will at last be set up. Do you, do you pray those lines from the Lord's Prayer and truly mean them? Do you? Well, I believe the answer to that question for each and every one of us, myself included, is ultimately found not in the words that we say, but in whether or not we understand the fullness of Jesus' call to follow him. I think that's how we truly know if we're really asking for God's kingdom to come. For if we only understand, listen, what, what, if we only understand what has Jesus has saved us from and not what he saved us to, then seeing Jesus' kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven becomes something that we just watch for. Because we've got our seat now, we've got our seat in the theater, we've got our popcorn, now we're like, I want to just watch, show Jesus, it's great to see your kingdom come. Not realizing when we understand the fullness of Jesus' call to follow him, seeing Jesus come on earth is something that he's also called us to join him in. Again, Apostle Paul, as he wrote, those God reconciled, those who have been reconciled in Jesus have also now been called to be reconcilers. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation now. We've joined him in it. So understanding that now, okay, so how will you be part of that kingdom work today? What will it look like for you? How will you be part of that kingdom work this week? What's one way you can This week, in the power of the Spirit, seek to bring the light of Christ into some place of darkness, in someone else's life, in some other situation. Who's who's that person, that neighbor, that family member that you're praying for and you're seeking opportunities to share the gospel of the kingdom with? What's... Where can you work in the Spirit's power and authority today to push back against the wintry effects of sin's curse over our world? In, in your family, in your friendships, in your workplace, in your classroom, in our city, in our world? Where can you join Jesus today in his kingdom work? Because here's the thing. God's going to continue to expand his rule and reign of his kingdom in this earth, in the hearts and minds of men and women, the signs of which we see all around us, until the day when Jesus returns at last and sets up his geographic kingdom on earth for all eternity as well. That's, that's a given. 
That's just going to continue to happen regardless. And yet, I believe the question the Word of God is pressing on each and every one of us today as followers of His is will we hear and be obedient to the fullness of Jesus' call to follow Him today and join Him in the kingdom-building work that He's called each one of us to do? Will you join Him in that work today? For if we will, then... As the Apostle Peter tells us, 2 Peter 3, we not only wait for that kingdom, but in some mysterious way, we also speed its coming. Amen. God help us to do that. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Amen.